Okay, we are at the end of our political series of Church Shift. Also, these have all been put on the podcast, We the Deplorables, which I had taken a break from it because I got overwhelmed um, with all that I had to do and some work and things like that. But um, this will give us some good content for a while and get me back in the groove. But I wanted, wanted to end with the biblical basis of voting. And when I was first born again, I'm like, I don't need to vote. I mean, you know, it's not in the Bible. Well, it actually is. Now, in the Bible, obviously, they were under a king, you know, type system. And, you know, a republic like we have did not exist. Uh, But there are plenty of scriptures, plenty of principles in there that support um, the role that we have and who our leaders are. Okay, so I want to start with um, Proverbs 29, verse 2. It says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. The Founding Fathers quoted this principle more than any other scripture in their documents, their writings, etc. They also understood that no matter how good our documents were or our laws, they are useless if a uh, wicked person is ruling. So in America, the people decide on whether we will have a righteous ruler or a wicked ruler. We have that choice. They didn't. But due to wrong theology or passivity or maybe a general lack of desire for any of the candidates running, We've not taken voting as serious as we should. Now, I can't say anything. I didn't start voting until um, the first, no, the second Bush. And uh, um, I just saw the the direction our nation was going, and I didn't want it to go that way. And so I voted in Bush, and quite frankly, I think he's caused a tremendous amount of damage. But he was the closest I could find, and I do believe he was pro-life at the time, or at least he said he was. So... The fallacy, however, that many um, encounter is that the federal elections are the most important. They're not. The local and state elections are actually more important than the federal. And we see this like with uh, Virginia, what happened there in 2020, uh, 2021. We see that with California, with these school boards and sexualizing our children. Uh, Virginia, the same thing. And so the people that are on our school school boards, the people that are serving in our local offices, all of those are more important than the federal because the federal, as I've already taught uh, three lessons ago, the federal is the most limited form of government or is supposed to be that states and then how local communities are and how they're ran will determine the type of leaders we get in the state. So that's actually more important, the states and the local voting, because the order of authority, again, is states' rights. We, the people, give authority to the states. The states give authority to the federal government, and unfortunately, um, that's gotten turned backwards. So if your local and state governments are not righteous, you have no defense against a federal government that is overreaching in its power. I heard one man say that while many uh, conservatives have been voting Republican in federal elections, we've lost a nation. We've been distracted with just the federal elections thinking the president is the most important. And I agree completely. 
local leaders, county leaders, school boards, state leaders, those will determine the direction of the nation. So it's kind of like evangelizing a city, but it remains unchanged. Um, that's because we'll go to the one, but we're not actually dealing with the influencer that then controls the thought of that city or that state. We must learn how to take mountains. Now, in recent presidential elections, 41% of born-again Christians did not vote. If only 10 million of these had voted with the other Christians, the outcome would have been completely different here in America. So why are they not voting? Why are you not voting? Let's look. I believe the first one and the dominant reason is not understanding its importance and the power we hold by voting, the stewardship, the responsibility that we have in this nation. Some might say, well, my vote doesn't count. It's all rigged anyway. Well, you know, the reason Trump got in the first time is so many showed up to the polls. It was a shock. It came out of nowhere. Even the crooked places didn't expect that to happen. Um, others are like, well, I don't like either one of them. You know, I didn't like Romney. When Romney was running against uh, Obama, I, I, I did not vote for Obama, but I dang sure didn't like Romney either. But he was the lesser of the two evil, as far as I could tell. So I voted Republican. Um, I'm, I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. If you um, have morality and you don't believe in aborting babies, I'm good. Um, if you believe in the Constitution and it enshrines my rights, I'm good. If you don't, I, I have a problem with you, you know? And so. Um, sometimes we don't have good candidates and that will keep people at home, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We've got to make sure that whether we like the candidates or not, whether we think it's rigged or not, we need to vote. Now, some uh, has come through false doctrine that we shouldn't be involved in politics because of leaven of Herod and all that stuff. So, let me address each one of these. I will concede that there have been numerous corrupt elections, probably from the start of our Founding Fathers Day. But proof that our vote does count was seen in Donald Trump's election. No one, not even the media or the other politicians, believed Trump had a snowball's chance in hell to win the election. It was a joke. He was a joke. But he won because many, many more people went to the polls than before. So, any nefarious activity fell short. More recent examples in Virginia, in which a Republican beat out a Democrat, now, in presidential elections, you might have 30% show up as poll watchers, which basically they make sure there's no shady uh, activity going on and there are certain laws and policies that govern what they do and how people interact with them and how they interact. But 95% of the poll watchers showed up in Virginia. So all the nefarious activity they did in previous elections couldn't happen. And all of a sudden we get a Republican. Shocker. Maybe that's what's going on up in uh, New Jersey and uh, New York. So they prohibit those activities. The same thing should have been done in New Jersey. I guarantee he would have been out. So volume and poll watching are going to be crucial from every election this point forward. There's way too much evidence I've given you that we are a Christian nation. Uh, nation. We've already gone through all of that. And so, um, you know, I've already read out of the role of pastors and Christians in civil government to prove to you that we were and are a Christian nation. Entire colonies were formed to preserve Christianity and expand, expand it, such as Massachusetts and Rhode Island. 
And don't forget the clergy that paid a ro played a role in founding this nation and the war starting on a church's lawn uh, by a pastor with his congregation, which I detailed in the last uh, class on the Black Robe Regiment. Also, a year-long investigation to where, whether America was founded on a Christian principle in 1854 proved that we were and that if we had even a hint that the war was not about preserving us as a Christian nation, it would have died in the cradle. Unfortunately, another reason is there's a lot of teaching out there that erroneously teaches that our founding fathers were Masons and designed this nation based on that demonic group, but it's not true. And there's a really good book, again, by David Barton that goes into that. There were actually two different types of Masons. The Masons that first started off and then the ones that um, started again. Uh, it, it's a very interesting read from original source documents, etc. So I highly recommend that. Um, I'm going to dive into the likability of candidates later in this teaching, but nowhere in our documents or laws or even the Bible is a leader to be picked because they're likable or they seem qualified. We are to use discernment and righteousness, which I'll define in a moment. And finally, Jesus defined what the leaven of Herod was, which is political hypocrisy. God doesn't like hypocrisy. He doesn't like when we're fake or phony or play acting. So that's, you know, basically when you're, you're being one thing to people uh, in public, but you're totally different and have different motives in private. And so as long as we stay humble and teachable and have integrity, we don't have to worry about that. Um, it's really becoming politic is what that is. So Moses, Joseph, David, Daniel, they were all in politics. In fact, the founding fathers took Romans 13.4 that refers to governing authorities as ministers literal and many ministers were also in government at that time. So what better place for governmental people to be than in government? I love this quote from David Barton. To have been given the power to determine the quality of our government and its leaders, and then use that power and not use that power, is reminiscent of the servant who received a trust from the master and decided not to do anything about it, not to get involved. Okay, so righteous. How do we get righteous leaders, especially if they're not born again? Righteousness in the Greek is a word that means justice. It's the essence of that which is just. In other words, act of doing what God requires. Listen to this um, from Zodiati's Complete Word Study Dictionary. In the case of the non-believer, the claims of the higher authority, which a person adopts as his own standard, Righteousness is thus conformity to the claims of higher authority and stands in opposition to lawlessness. So for the person who doesn't know God, righteousness is confined to the belief that there's a higher authority and as such adopts that, as his, adopts that idea as his own standard of government. Okay, so that's the least demonstration of righteousness that there is a God, therefore I'm going to do what's right. Okay, So that's for the sinner. You see this with at least the religious leaders like Benjamin, uh, the least of the religious leaders like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Both of them felt there was a higher power. They may not have been believers, but they definitely saw the um, expediency of Christianity, the Bible as being one of the most um, beautiful books ever written, and they understood that things needed to be according to the morality of the Bible, even if they were not believers 
themselves. So I'm sure you can see where the enemy has worked over time through vain philosophies and feckless leaders both in the church and government to remove all trace of God from government, schools, court systems, etc. If man doesn't at least acknowledge God and have some type of respect for him, the people become lawless. I remember when I was a kid, you didn't break into a church. You didn't steal from the ties. You didn't go into a church and start shooting people. That, that was off limits. Even people, I, when I was a sinner, uh-uh, there is no way. Because we were raised with the knowledge that God existed. We may not have believed in Him as believers, but we knew He existed. And there was a certain respect and honor toward Him and His people. Not so anymore. It's not necessarily whether a nation is Christian or not, or Christian or not, but how that nation treats the people of God that determines whether it's a sheep or goat, goat nation. So let me read this to you out of Matthew 25, 31 through 46. To prove my point. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, excuse me, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, which we're studying, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. He will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you curse, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you didn't give me any food. I was thirsty, you didn't give me any drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick, you didn't feed me or visit me. In prison, you didn't visit me. He'll say, they'll say, well, Lord, when did we see these things and not minister? And he says, surely I say to you, and as much as you did not do, to, do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the nation, whether it's cursed or blessed, will be in how they treat God's people, whether they're Christian or Jewish. Proverbs 29.2, again, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, I alluded to it. I've talked about it. I'm going to hit it again. Abortion is the one thing that we as believers should hold as a standard in voting for leaders. That's it. Abortion. So now, if a person's a Christian, they believe in abortion, I ain't voting for them. If a person's not a Christian and they're pro-life, I'll probably vote for them versus the one that is pro-abortion or pro-choice. It is amazing how many Christians voted in abortionists because they didn't like the orange man's tweets. He was the most pro-life Christian or pro-life president we've ever had. 
Well, I remember, this is crazy. It still is. It baffles me. And if you're listening to me and you voted for someone that believes in abortion because you didn't like Trump, I hope this convicts you. If you notice a difference in sound, it's because there is. I had to, um, all my stuff died because I've been talking for five hours straight on this. But uh, so anyway, back to my story, she had voted for um, Obama and uh, I had had a ministry meeting that night. Let me back up because I don't even know where everything stopped. So it was when Obama was running for the first time and I had voted for uh, not Obama because of his abortion stance. And I had a ministry meeting that night and I was, you know, talking to my team and saying, you know, Obama won the election and, you know, I'm sad about it because of his view on abortion, blah, blah. And so this, you know, person spoke up and, well, I, I voted for Obama. And I said, why? Well, we, we just need to get our boys home. And I said, well, what about abortion? I mean, if, you know, killing babies is more important than getting our boys home. And no, 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 we just need to get them home. So I'm, you know, told her about, you know, the scripture I just read that any nation that aligns itself with the enemy's agenda is doomed to failure. And, you know, I, I couldn't understand how, you know, you got people that volunteer to serve in the military with the knowledge they might end up in a war uh, fighting on our behalf versus innocent babies that should be the safest in their mother's womb. But you wanted to get the boys home, which he never did. But the whole idea that you would put something above abortion and vote for someone that believes in that was astounding to me. So I asked God to get her off my team. She's my intercessor. And I didn't want to hurt her feelings and tell her you're fired. Um, but I didn't trust that she had discernment in praying for me if she didn't have discernment in election issues. And uh, so I, I prayed for God to get her off my team, and he did. She all of a sudden could not attend a single event. It was fascinating. And finally she said, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to give you my resignation because no matter what I do, I cannot seem to get to any of the events. I'm like, don't worry about it. I accept your resignation. Thank you for your service, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I didn't get her off. God got her off. That should tell us something. So the other thing is Christians have gotten it in their heads that we should vote for a Christian leader. The reality is we need to vote for who is anointed. Uh, now this requires discernment because often people will look on the outside versus the inside. And there's been a lot of people that have said they're Christian and they're no more Christian than the devil is. Um, an example, and I'll just give you the scripture references. It's 1 Samuel 16. And in that story, you know, basically God told Samuel, I've rejected Saul, go anoint my next king, next king at the house of Jesse. And when he gets there, he sees the oldest, Eliab, and he's like, well, surely this guy's king. And God's like, no. And so he goes through all the children and none of them are the next king. And so he's like, okay, who, who is the next king? Do you like have any other children? And Jesse's like, well, yeah, we got the youngest, but he's watching the sheep, you know, basically like, nah, it ain't him. And Samuel's like, bring him in. And the minute he sees him, the Lord says, arise, anoint him, for he is the one. So this is one of the best examples of what I'm talking about. You can have people that look like they're king material, talk smooth, present a good idea, have charisma, have good ideas, and they're the devil. And they will take a country down faster than uh, you can say, oh no, 
You know, I mean, it just, it's amazing. And uh, another example is, um, actually it's a tragic example. It's in 2 Samuel 14. But you have Absalom, uh, Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar. And Tamar and Absalom were uh, brother and sister. Amnon was half. And he lusted after Tamar. And she was like, no, this isn't fitting. We shouldn't be having relations or anything like that. So he rapes her. And then the love he had for her turns to hate. Well, David didn't do anything. So Absalom waits and bides his time. And eventually he has a dinner and he kills uh, Abnon. Because Tamar's ruined. She'll never be able to marry. She'll never have children. In fact, she had to be sent off somewhere to live the rest of her days. And, uh, and so David doesn't do anything, so Absalom does. Then David gets mad at Absalom. And it exiles him. And I love David, but I think this is one of the biggest mistakes he's made. And so Absalom, you know, you know, is exiled. Joab's like, hey, you can't keep doing this to him. We need to get him back home. He's like, okay, he can come back, but I don't want to see him. So he comes back, and after two years, he couldn't get Joab to see him. He couldn't get his dad to see him. So he catches Joab's uh, field on fire. <laughs> and so Joab's like, what are you doing? Why are you catching my field on fire? And he's like, well, no one will talk to me. That's the only way I could get somebody here. He's like, okay, what do you want? And he said, why am I here? Why did you even bring me from Gesher? I was fine there. I was living my life there. I was fine. Why did you bring me back? He said, if my dad's not going to see me, I'll just go back. So he convinces David to start seeing Absalom. They seem to reconcile. Um, it comes into the king's presence. And the king kisses him. Now, after that, Absalom gets 50 chariots and horses that would go before him whenever he'd go anywhere. Then, in 2 Samuel 15, 2, it says, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king of judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? When he said, Your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. So Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a disputer case might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of it, and kiss him. So Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, and he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So basically, this is a great example of the leaven of Herod, where he's using political intrigue to take over the kingdom. Problem is God didn't select him as king. He selected David, and then after him, Solomon. So kissing the hand is what you did to kings back then, him having his chariots and all that. Like he began to play the part of king, even though he wasn't king. He began to take the role of king to where he eventually um, captured the hearts. So... Absalom uh, tricks his father, requesting permission to go to Hebron to pay a vow. And while he was there, he was crowned king. The ploy didn't work. He ended up dead. So the people saw this beautiful man. They said that he was more beautiful than any of the other people in Israel. His hair weighed 200 shekels of uh, silver. Every time he'd cut it, they'd weigh it. I mean, he was handsome, chiseled features probably. And so he looked good, he sounded good, but he wasn't the one, and it ended up costing him his life. Then you have Cyrus, 
who's not even a Christian. He's not even a God believer. Because, of course, it wasn't Christian back then because Jesus hadn't come. But you know what I mean? He didn't even believe in the God of Israel. He was a pagan. In Isaiah 45, 1 through 6, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the uh, doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. So in other words, Cyrus, a pagan king, was anointed for the sake of Israel and Jacob, his chosen. I call you by your name. I name you though you don't know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will equip you, though you don't know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So Cyrus was the pagan king of Persia who defeated Babylon. He was also the king that allowed the exiles to go back to Jerusalem with his full blessing and to rebuild. He didn't know God. And it plainly says that God named him and would equip him, even though he didn't know him, for the sake of his people. He was the one anointed, even though he didn't know God. It's another, here's another example of God using a pagan ruler in 2 Chronicles 35, 20-23. After this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. Well, he sent envoys to Josiah saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, uh, but against the house which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. See, supposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. The word God there is Yahweh. Nevertheless, Josiah didn't turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archer shot King Josiah, and he said, Take me away, I'm badly wounded. So here, Pharaoh Necho is given and anointed an assignment to fight against the Assyrians by God. Josiah didn't hear Necho or didn't hear God's words because of the package God chose to speak through, that is a pagan king. God anointed Necho to fight the Assyrians, but Josiah got in the way and it cost him his life. In 2020, this country chose the one who sounded peaceful and unifying, seemed more pleasant than Trump, only to find a wicked and lawless leader has done everything he can to destroy this country. The most important gift we need right now is discernment. We needed a Jehu, we needed a Cyrus, and instead we got an Absalom. And he's not going to just pay the price. We are as a country. We traded the orange man in for our beautiful man, and we got corruption. James Garfield said, Now more than ever, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it's because the people demand those high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. If the next centennial does not find us a great nation, it will be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, and the morality of the nation do not aid in controlling the political forces. In other words, we're not voting for the right people or we're not voting at all. And we have failed in controlling the political forces. 
69% of the nation says that keeping religion out of schools and government's gone too far. 61% support prayer in school. 74% want the Ten Commandments back in the classroom. And 64% of this country oppose late-term abortion. So why are the majority not being represented? Because we've abdicated our influence and our role and being involved in the polls and in the mountain of government. Listen to what Charles Finney, the leader in America's second and third great awakening said. The church must take the right ground in regard to politics. The time has come that Christians must vote for honest men and take consistent ground in politics. Christians must have been exceedingly guilty in this matter, but the time has come that they must act differently. God cannot sustain this free and blessed country, which we love and pray for, unless the church will take right ground. It seems sometimes as if the foundations of the nation are becoming rotten, and Christians seem to act as if they think God does not see what they do in politics, but I tell you, He does see it, and He will bless or curse this nation according to the course Christians take in politics. It's on us. Our culture has moved the wrong way because of lack of involvement, wrong teaching, wrong history, false history. We are the most powerful force in this country still, Christians are. Just as we were in the Revolutionary War and abolishing slavery, we're now at that time in history, an epoch, where we either save this country or we lose it. We don't want to have the heart of Hezekiah. Well, as long as it's peaceful while I'm alive. We want to care about the next generation. We want to care if America makes it. If America fails, so does the world. We are the restraining force that sustains the world. It's up to us to leave a legacy for our children and grandchildren. We must not be as Hezekiah again, who did not care what happened to the future generations, as long as he had peace. We must rouse ourselves from our complacency and take action to save America. I leave this, leave you with this one quote from the U.S. Supreme Court in 1892. Now this is law. There is no dissonance in these declarations. There is a universal language pervading them all, having one meaning. They affirm and reaffirm that this is a religious nation. This is a Christian nation.